You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker. Joining me today, we have State Representative Andrew Fink, who represents Michigan State House District 35. That's the entirety of Hillsdale and Branch Counties and the city of Hudson and Lenawee County. Last week, there's a fair amount of legislative action, so I look forward to getting to all of that. Representative Fink, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on one last time, Josh, before you depart our... uh, (laughs) The fair city of Hillsdale and the rolling hills of southern Michigan. Oh, yes. It's beautiful to be greeted by the chilly wind the first day of May here. That is probably the one thing that I will not miss. This was more or less the exact weather on the day I graduated from Hillsdale in 2006. So, yeah, what's old is new again. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Last Wednesday, the House passed Senate Bill 259, and the Senate affirmed the House version uh, on Thursday. So now it's headed to Governor Whitmer, and the bill deals with election law. Uh, It's fairly limited. It would allow absentee ballots cast by military members who are abroad and other overseas voters to be tabulated if they're received within six days of an election and postmarked on or before Election Day. Um, On the House vote, you oppose the bill. Tell us about some of your concerns with that legislation. Yeah, the primary concern is, and I, I, uh, I didn't uh, think to bring like a copy of proposal two in here with me. And I don't think I can uh, find the language while we're just sitting here together, but proposal two dealt with, um, I think it deals with ballots that are postmarked, but prior to the election, but received within six days after the election, the change, the, the, the way in which this bill, I think it's fair to say actually goes beyond, not just goes beyond what's necessary under prop two, but really establishes a policy that is contrary to it. It says that if if uh, the postmark is indeterminate, then essentially the the election official needs to make a judgment about whether he or she thinks that this ballot was probably mailed uh, before election day on or before election day, and then received within six days. And that kind of vagueness is the sort of play in the joints that you want to avoid in election administration. You know, I oppose proposal two. One of the reasons I oppose it is because I think that if you have a ballot that is ready to be counted at 8 p.m. on election night, then that should be counted. And if you do not have, if that ballot is not ready to be counted, uh, then it should not be counted. And you got to draw the line somewhere. I mean, there's obviously there's nothing, uh, there's nothing more logical about six days than seven or nine or 14. And so this seems to me like it's kind of creep to extend the election season, again, not only the 45 days or whatever it is before the election that you can vote absentee, uh, but now six days after the election and who knows, potentially farther beyond that. Because I think that probably the proponents of this legislation who, again, want to introduce play in the joints as to which ballots will count when they're received after the election date, they probably uh, will want to extend that time period as well. And I don't know whether, I mean, I, I don't think that the fact that proposal two again, clearly makes it a six day window would stop them from saying, well, we can go beyond that by statute. We have to go to six days, but maybe we can go beyond it. So in my view, this is uh, an attempt to again, kind of extend the public policy of the state into new and, and even in a sense, a contradictory place from where the people just put it. And that's even though I had my own reservations about proposal two its language is clear that the 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 ballots have to be postmarked, and this removes that clear distinction. Does the fact that it's limited to overseas ballots and military members who are overseas assuage any of your concerns? I think the answer is no, because I mean, for the military ballots, we've already instituted a way by which they can uh, vote electronically using their 
common access card and which is you know i think we probably talked about that uh but the you know the reason that i kind of wound up settling in and, and being okay with that policy is because we already do like massively secure uh things using that as the security key and so making that voting more efficient for the military members is one thing but expanding it to other people who happen to be overseas uh again just introduces playing the joints you don't have that same kind of reliability so i don't think the military members needed this and i think that the other people who uh were not are not military members are not similarly positioned and so uh, no i don't think the fact that it's limited to those two groups is all that meaningful because the military ones don't need it and in a different kind of sense neither do the other overseas people because we don't need to go as far out of our way to and we don't have the same tools to provide them access to the election uh, in a special way, you know, so no, I, that doesn't really settle things for me. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Fink with us. So last Thursday, the Senate passed Senate Bill 144. The goal is to give the EITC provisions of House Bill 4001, which expands the earned income tax credit provisions that passed over a month ago, It wants to give those provisions effectively with uh, immediate effect, allowing taxpayers to claim the higher amounts for tax year 2022, which, of course, most people finished filing their taxes last month in April. What are your thoughts on the legislation as the bill now heads to the House and presumably I'll be voting on it in short order? Well, I think this was one thing that that some in my caucus were looking for in order to support the legislation when it, it was introduced. Doing it now, obviously, like it's going to cost the state some money. And I, you know, I'm trying to think whether, I mean, so it's expanding the earned income tax credit from 6% of the federal credit to 30% of the federal credit. It's not going to be a huge amount of money for any particular family. So not having done it up front seems kind of dumb. Doing it now retroactively when most people will have to file amended returns in order to take advantage of it, I think unless uh, the plan is to have treasury just kind of like audit them or something and send, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what they think the plan is, but clearly this is sort of a ham fisted way of doing it. In all honesty, I'm a skeptic to a degree of the EITC anyway, and I voted against the legislation. And I probably will oppose this as well. I mean, I'll, I'll kind of let it play out. I suppose I might, I might have a little bit of a different view than I do of the overall program. If the only question is whether to make it apply retroactively to the beginning of this year, if it is, Uh, if it seems like a feasible system, you know, my skepticism of it is based on grounds other than when it started. So uh, we'll have to look at that. But overall, it's clear that the rush to get it done and for it to be House Bill 4001 and be signed in the first, you know, kind of passel of bills that the governor signed probably uh, was an unnecessary rush as so much of this year has been in Lansing. And now we have to now the you know the situation that's put us in is having to go back and fix something and as i've said to my younger brothers uh not that they've all always listened to me but it is easier to stay in shape than to get back into shape and so you know fixing this thing up front would have been better than you know having to to do it and then go back and fix it going back and fixing it is never as easy as it seems like it will be um so yeah i i i have problems with the way this has come down i guess we'll see exactly what the plan is but i'm a skeptic so let's talk a little bit more about your opinions on the earned income tax credit, which again, for our listeners who aren't familiar, the idea is that it essentially acts as a work subsidy where at your lower levels of income, once you reach the threshold, which if I recall correctly, is like $10,000 in income a year at the federal level, 
you get the full credit and it's supposed to be like tied to work and, and giving you back a return. So in practice, you're paying a negative tax rate until you reach some somewhere around the 50,000 mark. At the state level, you're getting a percentage of that federal credit. What are your concerns about expanding the credit here at the state level for the state income tax? Yeah. The basic concern is that the, I mean, the pitch, as you've already said, is that this is supposed to, you, you have to have earned income in order for this to apply, but it does, it is a refundable credit. And so uh, using the tax code as a way to push money out, I just, I find it odd. Like, and, and it sort of suggests that what we have is we want to subsidize something. We're going to use your, you know, your, your tax refund to do it, even if it's beyond what you paid in taxes. And so calling these things, you know, refundable tax credits are, are uh, a way to incentivize behavior that is sort of, you know, it's just a little opaque, all right, because it's, it's, you know, what, all right, so for this one to apply, you have to have worked, then you have to have worked to a certain amount of money, and then you get the credit, and the credit slides based on how many people you have living in your family, your, your, your household side, size, and it's, you know, now we've, we're changing the percentage from 6 to 30% of the federal credit. And this is all because we think that if people do, I mean, I guess like a, a proponent of this thinks that doing that much work is so valuable to the state that we should then, you know, pay you an additional amount of money for having done the work. I have some sympathy for the idea that our tax code should take into account working families because, uh, well, there are two primary reasons for that. One is most of the work happening out there is being performed by people between the ages of like 20 and 55. These are the people that are raising kids. So we want them to be available to work. We want it to make sense for them to work. Uh, then we should take into account that they're also doing a second, uh, the, most of the second thing, which is providing the next generation of workers. So like the economy is going to you know, kind of depend on this. On the other hand, um, you know, a single mother uh, working can earn this earned income tax credit. You know, she can uh, qualify for it. If she's being, you know, say, taken care of by family members while she has young kids and she is not working, then this sim- a similar benefit is not there for her, but she's performing just as major of a function for society. So that's why I'm usually skeptical of using the tax code to incentivize behaviors in one way or another because it often winds up sort of implicitly diminishing the value of other choices that I don't always think the state has, has correctly judged. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. This past summer I was up at AI in the poverty studies department. And one of the debates there is over whether the child tax credit should be merged into the EITC where essentially it's all because the child tax credit also part of it is refundable, not tied at all to income. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea is, should that be part of this? Or on the other hand, you have people saying, oh, actually, all of the child benefits of the EITC should not be tied to income because children need the money and they're more likely to not be hungry if you give them these funds when they need it the most and their parents aren't making the $10,000 a year or something. Yeah, there's a sense in which I actually think that, that, I mean, I'm not sure I would support a child tax credit either, but there's a sense in which I prefer that because it actually does relate directly to the thing, this that second thing I was talking about, which is these are the people who are raising the next generation of Americans. And rather than make life more expensive to do that, if you want to have a nice, robust population of outstanding citizens, then you should make having and raising stable families attractive. And so by tying it simply to the fact that whoever you are, you know, economically, you have disincentives to have children. I mean, I don't think it's as simple as everybody says, or, you know, 110 years ago, 
it was an incentive to have a child. There was an economic incentive to have a child because we were all farmers and we had whenever, I think it was around 1920 that we finally went from more than 50% of Americans were living, uh, or fewer than 50% of Americans were living on farms, I think. But, you know, so then the theory was that everybody had an incentive to have children because they were inexpensive labor for, you know, 15 to 20 years or whatever. Now nobody has that incentive. I don't know if it's really that simple, but it certainly is true that people think carefully about their finances as they're doing whatever family planning they do. And so if the state, and I think we should, think that it's good for people to have children and have you know, a robust generation following the, the ones that are in the workforce now, not just the workforce, but for purposes of economic conversations, relieving that burden for everybody makes sense. To me, more than, in some senses, the EITC does, which is one of those programs that, and it also, by the way, it has cliffs. You know, once you get to a certain amount of money per child or whatever, then you no longer qualify. So there are incentives there to both have additional children in order to remain eligible for the program or to stop earning money in order to avoid becoming ineligible for the program. So those are reasons that the EITC and kind of the complications of it are perhaps less attractive than a straight child tax credit would be. We're talking about the next generation of workers. The previous generation of workers has some concerns about their pensions. The Hillsdale City Council at a meeting in early April unanimously passed a resolution asking for the legislature and the governor to provide funding for local municipal pension plans. They cited that last year a bill that passed the House but not the Senate would have allocated $1 billion to local pensions. $750 million of that would have gone to pensions that were underfunded with less than 60% of the necessary funds. Uh, $250 million of that would go to pensions that had greater than 60% of needed funds but were still underfunded. Hillsdale's among those pensions that's doing better and has followed best practices, but they're still facing a shortfall, uh, which is why they're requesting these funds. What do you think about such a proposal in the state budget? Do you think this could be a good use of state funds? It's possible that it could be. I mean, there are a, there's a variety of factors here which sort of might weigh in different directions. And in all honesty, I have no memory of whether I supported this bill the last time or what else was in it. Um, I don't know if, did you look up my vote, Josh? You're usually more on top of this history than I am. Theo. Yes, you did indeed support it. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you remember? Did you look at the, when you looked at the bill, did it have anything else in it? I don't remember. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a whole supplemental yeah, appropriations bill. Yeah. So yeah. this, that was not the only line item at all. Yeah. But as a concept, I mean, there are, I, so some of the sources of tension are, on the one hand, there is reduced revenue sharing since these pension programs were invented. Uh, and so there's a sense in which the state has directed less money directly to locals than they thought they were going to get at the, at the outset of these plans or really until, you know, about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, and so that might uh, sort of militate in favor of, um, of supporting it. On the other hand, you know, many municipalities don't have pensions. If the state is the entity that's ultimately going to make up the, di the difference here, then uh, then residents of places who don't directly benefit from the work performed by these pensioners uh, will be paying for the pensions rather than just the people in the cities that actually benefited from them. So there are reasons, I think, to kind of look at it in both directions. And one thing I'll say, though, is that if there is going to be any kind of um, support from the state for these plans, one thing that I think I, I would have an easy time supporting is that municipalities should all be treated the same. Uh, I have some concern that, that um, 
people who have managed their affairs better will wind up receiving less help in that sense. That always bothers me because, you know, it's it, honestly, it's analogize it to the student loan controversy. I don't remember if you and I ever got into all that, but say I'm a person, because I am, who's paid off federal student loans. People who advocate that other student loans should be forgiven say, well, you know, just because you got stuck in a bad system, you think other sh- people should be stuck in it. And of course, the answer is, well, no, I just think that if I made responsible economic choices and someone else made poor economic choices, and now you're going to give them a benefit that I don't get because I kept myself out of trouble, that seems unfair to the people who did well. So I agree with you. I think Hillsdale's done a pretty good job of doing what it can here. And so, you know, a city like Hillsdale, and I think there are a couple others in the district that have weighed in on this as well. Um, I'd want to make sure that they're treated fairly if this legislation does move forward. Whether it is likely to, I genuinely have no idea. I haven't heard any discussions of it yet. Probably would he be here of it relatively quickly in that process, given that I am still on the Appropriations Committee. But I don't know if it's going to be in the state budget or if it might be in a supplemental following on. So we'll have to see. And that all these moral hazard arguments, I mean, this is the exact same thing with the bank failures, too, which I know this is an econ policy show. But First Republic, the third bank to fail since March, I believe last Friday. What happens? FDIC pays out the bank customers all their deposits in these earlier banks beyond the $250,000 limit. And then what they end up doing is levying more fees on the other banks that are contributing to the deposit insurance fund, the banks that are not failing and they're doing fine. Right. I think this is clearly a problem across policy areas, state, federal. Similar would be the immigration problem we have. People say it's difficult to imagine a resolution to our current, I mean, the, the crisis kind of waxes and wanes, but essentially we don't have control of our southern border. We have many millions of, uh, of people who don't have a legal right to be here and are not being in a sense properly kept track of as non-citizen residents. Um, and so people think that there will likely be some form of an amnesty. The problem with an amnesty is every time you do it, it incentivizes people to try to catch the next one. And so it, it, it said, yeah, it's just another one of these circumstances where people who kind of wait in line and go about things the right way, wind up feeling like suckers. And you also send the message that, you know, don't let yourself be the next sucker. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker and we represent Fink with us. So about a month ago, the House passed House Bill 4219, one of the very few Republican-led bills that's passed so far this term. And the Senate finally passed it last week, and the governor signed it on Thursday. The bill, led by Representative Matt Hall from Richland Township, will restructure the Michigan Strategic Fund Board, which controls the state's economic development funds. The board currently has members appointed from lists devised by the House Speaker and Senate Majority Leader, but it will now have appointees also representing the House and Senate minorities as well, which right now are both Republican. The move also uh, shifts control from the Treasury Department to the Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity. So its director would now be a member of the board and the director of the Department of Licensing and Regulatory Affairs would be kicked off. When you're looking at this structural improvement, do you think this is going to be very helpful or have much of a substantive impact on the types of projects that MSF is supporting, as you've certainly been critical as we've talked about here about some of the choices they've made about various projects statewide. So I would say that in a, uh, in the technical sense, the improvement is marginal because you're talking about two appointments made by the minority, regardless of what party the governor is, that's still where most of the authority here is really redounding back to. So 
it's marginal in a technical sense. You know, I don't what I can now I can't remember what the ratio is gonna be. It's like nine to two or something like that. I think it's a total of seven members. Total of so okay. five to five to two. Five to All two. right, yeah, yeah, that's right. Because those other those some posts were removed here. So okay, so so it's five to two. So in a technical sense, it probably doesn't make a huge difference. Uh, on the other hand, you have maybe more skeptical eyes earlier in the process than you would without it. And so that's really the kind of the the reason to support it is is sort of a theory that. Uh, if you have people who are not necessarily like on the same side as the leadership on the same side as the governor, then they're more likely to kind of notice an issue earlier on than a bunch of people who are kind of all supposed to be rowing in the same direction. Of course, in divided government, this might be different. I mean, last, you know, last term, the, the house and Senate were both Republican. And uh, so the governor had, had her appointments and they had theirs. And so it's a little bit, you know, that was a little bit different, but here we are uh, today, and the government's basically unified. There's a just a kind of a you know sort of nonpartisan, neutral, political, sciency reason to say it's better to have some of this divided up. It's sort of the same thing, you know. You sometimes hear people say they don't like nine nothing Supreme Court cases. I think that's kind of silly, but their point is like unanimity sometimes suggests a lack of critical thinking, and so making it less likely that you're going to experience that, I think, is probably a positive. Again, not so much in the technical sense, but in the sense that maybe they'll flag a problem that will get public attention or the attention of the legislature or what have you, and uh, and maybe prevent some bad things from happening. All right. Well, we've reached our time limit for today. Again, I'm Josh Barker, and we've had Representative Fink with us. Um, as was alluded to at the beginning of the show, this will be the last interview that I conduct before I graduate uh, next Saturday and then head off to work in Pennsylvania. Um, but these interviews will continue even without me as they did well before me. In the meantime, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thanks, Josh.